Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? It is going. How about you? Well, it's January 20th and yeah, it's um, cold as I'll get out and another day off from school for what was anticipated to be a lot of snow, but nothing. So our kids are home today for a rain day. For a rain day. <laughs> I just have to tell a quick story. So this is very typical. So we live in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., and this is very um, typical for our school systems here, unfortunately, for, for better or for worse. And I'll tell a quick story. I may have told this before. I don't remember. I think I've told you, but um, I grew up from uh, five to nine years old. I lived in Colorado. And in all those four or so years that I lived there, I don't think we ever had school canceled. Maybe we had a delay once when there was like a really big snowstorm, but we never had school canceled. So we moved to this area over winter break when I was in fourth grade. And um, I was really excited on January 3rd or whatever to go into my new school and meet my new class and woke up all excited. And my mom, I still can picture my mom walking into my bedroom and looking at me with this very confused look and saying, you don't have school today. And I said, why don't I have school today? I want to go into school and meet, you know, go, go to my new school. She said, because it's supposed to snow. <laughs> I hadn't started snowing yet. It was supposed to snow. So I guess maybe a few hours later, I look out my window and the, the flakes were just coming down and there maybe was like a really thin coating on, on the grass, not even on the streets. And there were kids trying to sled down the hill next to my house in the like little bit of snow that was on the grass. And I was like, we are not in Denver anymore. So that was my introduction to Montgomery County and their, their kind of their snow policies and their school closures. And, uh, you know, how many years later now, like 40 years later, it still rings true. So. Yeah, the outraged parents who can't believe school's canceled. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, but you know, once in a while they make the right call for sure. But today was not the right call. It's just raining, but whatever. You know, it's hard position. <laughs> you know, it's so hard to put yourself in the position of the decision makers last night. They were calling for uh, snow and some ice this morning. So, you know, I guess erring on the side of being safe. And then you wake up and the forecast is entirely it didn't pan out. So uh, I think you're, you're, they're in a position of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough job. I would not want that job. No, no, not at all. So yeah. Um, we know what that's like, you know, we used to remember when we used to have um, winter programs outdoors and we would struggle in the morning with, do we do it? Do we not? Do we call it off? Do we go, do we go forward with it? And, you know, it's on both sides. If the weather pans out and it starts getting slick on the roads and we've got a group out there and we've been in that position before where it's dangerous and it's a little bit scary um, or you cancel it and then the weather turns out to be fine. Everyone wonders why didn't we have our group run? So we've been in that position before. It's a hard call to make. The forecast isn't exact and uh, hindsight is 2020. For sure. I think uh, you and I really learned that the hard way. I think we were, it was about uh, five years in our group programs, we never had any incidents. We felt like we, we definitely were cautious, but we felt like we were really aired on the side of let's do it. You know, rain, sleet, snow or wind, just no ice. And we looked at the weather carefully. We had our group run and one of our runners slipped on ice and bumped her head and had a mild concussion. And that for both of us, it really shook us to the core because we felt like really responsible for that, even though um, we, we looked at the weather, looked at the temperature, looked at the ground temperature and determined it was safe. And clearly it wasn't. And that was tough. And I feel like after that, we were a little bit even more cautious and, and erred on the side of canceling uh, if it was even a modicum of ice was predicted. 
Yep. Yep. So speaking of which, you know, that means necessitates moving things around in the schedule, being flexible with your schedule, um, really figuring out, you know, a lot of people thought uh, they weren't going to be able to run today. So they did their workouts yesterday or pushed them to tomorrow and turned out they could do them today. So, um, you know, just, it's, it's really a matter of, of being flexible. And, um, if you wake up and the conditions are really bad to not think you've got to push through it and take that risk of going outside where you can find something else to do. You can do some cross training inside. You can uh, move your run to later in the day when it gets warmer, our streets are clear. And usually, um, uh, neighborhood streets are generally cleared pretty quickly rather than the sidewalks and, and paths and trails, but, um, just requires a lot of flexibility in the winter. And we have runners all over, um, the country who, who deal with issues like this, uh, not our, not our runner in Hawaii, or maybe some of our runners in Florida, um, but they deal with thunderstorms too. So they, they do have weather and, and humidity rather related issues, but most of the country right now, most of our runners, um, even internationally are dealing with having to, um, manage the weather. And it just, comes with comes with the, the winter. I don't hear anyone complaining when we get into the heat of the summer. That's right. The weather. And we talked about that a lot last week for anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen to our kickoff episode uh, for our season. We talked a lot about what happens when training gets off to a rocky start. And look, we're all in the same boat and we will get those miles in. It may not be perfect, but the schedule is a guideline, not a mandate. And get creative. And, and we have a guest coming up, Tony Rich, who we'll inter- introduce in a moment, a uh, fellow coach who's out of Boston. And he gave some great ideas and tips for troubleshooting uh, when you can't quite fit in the complete mileage of a long run, which includes dividing a run in half and doing some in the morning and some at night. Or we have a lot of folks who have access to treadmills or even indoor cycling, where maybe you get out and you do five miles of your long run outside and that's about all you can get in before a snowstorm starts or something like that. And then you get inside and you do equal time cross training, or you do some running on the treadmill and it may not be perfect, but you're getting in that endurance bit of your training on the weekend and just, just do what you can. And know at the end of the day, when you get to the start line in three months, we've still got plenty of time. We're not going to look back and say, Oh gosh, in early and mid January, I didn't get a lot of running in and that really screwed me over. No, no, no. Look at it. Like I did, I did what I could. I worked around things creatively. I didn't get injured and I'm here at the start line, healthy, ready to go because really that's key. And speaking of which we had some phenomenal things happen in women's running last weekend. One of whom is Kira D'Amato who grew up in the DC area. She um, went to high school at Oakton high school and graduated from American university and now lives in Richmond. And Kira, uh, the headlines for Kira, of course, is that she broke the American records, Dina Castor's record, and ran an incredible, incredible marathon at Houston on Sunday. The headline also mentions that, of course, she's a full-time realtor and a mom of two, which is really great. Uh, Lots of moms out there are competing. Lots of women are just making huge strides. But the fact that she's a full-time realtor and a professional runner, that's that's unusual. And another runner just did that as well, Sarah Bond, who ran her very first marathon, uh, record time for a first marathon, also a realtor. So there's something about being a realtor. But what some of the articles talked about and what Kira talks about too is her road to this American record, it was not perfect. It was not linear. First of all, she took 10 years off uh, to have kids, which you and I can talk about that in a minute. We, we think there's an advantage to that. But also in this training cycle, she had a hamstring injury where she had to take meaningful time off. She didn't get to that start line at Houston and say, 
you know what, I think I'm, I'm going to be able to do this, but I'm not sure because I didn't get in all the miles I planned to get in. I had a really low mileage training cycle for someone who's trying to do this. And that's because I had some hamstring issues and this didn't look so great, but you know what? I'm just going to do my best. No, she got to the start line on Sunday and believed in herself and said, I did some high intensity work. My training cycle worked for me. And I had, I was joyful about my running and I had a lot of fun in this training cycle. And I believe based on my key workouts, which were just the past two weeks that I can do this. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this beyond the headline that she's a real and a mom. I think one of the lessons we can learn from this is that you got to believe in yourself and recognize that even if your training cycle is not perfect, that doesn't mean you won't have a great race and there will be imperfect moments in your race. And those imperfect moments also won't define the outcome. Kira had an imperfect moment or two in her race. Um, she, the last 10 K she slowed down a little bit. And she talked about this on the Sidious Mag podcast with Chris Chavez. If you haven't listened yet, she's interviewed. It's a terrific interview. She talks about how she got down in a moment. She really wanted to quit. And she said to herself, I don't want to try to break this record again. That's going to be really hard. I'm here today to do it. So I'm going to go ahead and do it today. She easily could have said, you know what? Second place is really good. Or coming in close to the record is really good. But instead, she didn't let that imperfect moment define her race. So I think there are so many lessons to be learned from that. And I think what we can take away from Kira's experience and apply it to our own training right now is that these imperfect moments in training do not define our success. It's how we handle them. And by remaining positive and being creative and resourceful and resilient, we can keep going and end up having, having a really solid block of training and a positive attitude at the start line. Yeah, I think the key to that and what my takeaway too from, you know, from her story is, is um, it's all in your mindset. So if you let yourself get down that, go down that spiral, I call it the spiral of death, where you start thinking every little issue you have or snag that you have in your training just means doom for like, I'm doomed. I can't, you know, forget it. I might as well give up or, uh, you know, internalizing. It's kind of like that growth mindset, you know, when you're faced with a challenge, um, you could either say, well, this sucks for me. And this is just, this is my, this is where I am. And this is my destiny. And, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to change it versus, okay, this is just something that happened. And now I have, I, I can choose to, you know, to, to grow from here. And, um, and I think that is really, really important because we see a lot of runners who will have a downtime in their training where, whether it's due to injury or sickness or just work stress or whatever it is where things aren't going perfectly. And if in our experience, if we can see them say, okay, I had a bad week this week is, you know, just chalk that up to learning experience and we'll move, pick up and move on next week. And I, I still have, you know, looking forward to my race. I, I still am in great shape. I've still done everything I can within the confines of my restrictions this week um, and move on. They tend to have great races and we forget, we even get to their race day and they have a great race and we forget like, Oh, do you remember, you know, two months ago, you had a whole week where you couldn't work out because you had a little pain that we decided to take a week off versus, you know, get, get behind the eight ball. So um, or, you know, that if you get in your mind that that's just sort of the end of your training or that's going to doom your training, then we, again, we've talked about this before, but where your mind goes, your body follows. So you get to determine, um, 
what that setback or that little challenge, how that affects the rest of your training. And that's sort of how I see it. And, and again, we've had a lot of runners who have, have snags in training and most of them go on to have really good races. And a lot of that is due to that positive mindset. Well said, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about a little bit too, how Kira had a decade off basically from anything but hobby jogging, as she called it. And she said she was just quote, just a fan of the sport. And while some people may look at that decade off as a setback, you and I, with our anecdotes and doing this for 12 years um, as coaches, and of course, as runners for many, many years, we see for ourselves that there are some benefits to taking time away from running because, and there was even a Washington Post article about this in which we were quoted a few years ago. Really, it's about your running age, how many miles you have under you, not your actual age when determining when you can peak. And it isn't a big surprise to you and me that Kira is peaking at 37 because she took 10 years off. And also we feel like we've seen this a lot. A lot of women who have children, there's something about post-pregnancy running. There's like a magic bullet to it. It could have to do with blood volume. And we'd love to see a mass study on this, but we really feel like it, it actually enhances if training properly and not returning to running too soon can actually enhance your running, enhance your endurance, your ability to build mitochondria. And it's all about not rushing back and taking your time. So for you and me, this, this result didn't surprise us as much as maybe some of the people writing about it. And similarly, Sarah Hall, what's interesting about Sarah is that she is around the same age as Kira. And unlike Kira, she's been running the whole time, of course, having injuries here and there, like so many runners, but has been a consistent, fantastic marathoner. And she continues to improve, which is incredible because she has a lot more years of running consecutively under her belt. And interestingly, also about Sarah is her life has never been busier. She has four kids. She adopted four kids and She's in the throes of that. I know um, at least two of them, I believe, are now in college, but she's still very involved in their lives. And I'm sure she and Ryan are doing so much just beyond her running. And while she is, of course, a professional runner beyond Kira, because she is not also a full-time realtor, she has probably more responsibilities now than she's ever had. And look what that has done to her running. So arguably, there is something to be said, too. And of course, with Sarah Vaughn is another one maybe being busier and having something that aligns with your running that you're just as passionate about or requires a lot of time in addition to your running sort of takes away the focus and creates less of a pressure cooker. So when you tow the start line, you're saying, you know, I'm really proud of myself because in addition to training, I also um, have been doing really great in my career or whatever it is that you have your, your second sort of focus on, it takes away the pressure. Yeah, I agree. And a couple points, just going back to what you've been talking about. First of all, I would say that when I was 37, that was my peak year as well. So I don't know if there's something about 37, but that was my, if you look at my race times, all the, you know, my PRs are all when I was about 37. So I, I think there's something to be said about that for me. And I think for, all, and you kind of, uh, you know, hinted at this just right now with what you were saying, um, after I had kids, my focus was much more dialed in. So I only had a certain amount of time to train. I would only have while the kids were napping or before they woke up or whatever it was. So you have to be much more um, efficient with your time and focused on your training where you don't have 
all day and all of the time. You just, I, I felt like I was much more, more focused. And like you said too, you know, you've got other things going on. So you're not so wrapped up in running being everything. So I think that is really um, important. And I also, I had heard or maybe it was read something that, you know, Ryan Hall, who coaches Sarah had said that her, her lactate development really like took a big jump in her, you know, in, in the recent years, in her quote unquote later running years versus her earlier running years that her, her lactate threshold training really was what was, was the kind of the key this time. And that he saw a huge improvement there and that there may be something physiologically as we get older, um, that we're better able to develop that lactate threshold, which is really the, the critical and key component to performance at 10 mile or half marathon, marathon distance. And we talk about this all the time and we really um, focus on that with our, our runners that we're, we're coaching. Um, so it was interesting for me to hear him say that, that he thought that the big difference for her this year uh, that was that um, her, her lactate threshold training and her lactate threshold really, um, really was kind of at its optimum or its peak. Yeah, and that's good coaching because Ryan, her husband, not biased, I mean, took a look at where her strengths lied and decided decided to focus a lot of her workouts on LT lactate thresholds, knowing that would give her the most bang for her buck. And it certainly has worked. So really exciting stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, both records were broken rather soon. And, and that's a good thing for women's running, but I'm, I'm very excited for both them. And it's fun right now to just be a spectator and watch it and see the trajectory of both of these women and so many more. I, I certainly, I mean, there's been, there were some really big breakthroughs at Houston. Another one was Maggie Montoya. One, I mean, ran her first marathon and had a terrific result. And uh, she's also the same runner who was in the grocery store in Colorado when that shooting occurred. Um, I think it was right. about six months ago. I mean, awful, awful. And she talked about that experience. And I mean, she had a true traumatic experience and to be able to turn that around. Uh, she was in a crisis and be able to continue to focus on her goals is, is really quite impressive. And I would love to hear her talk about that on a podcast. I hope someone will interview her. I, I mean, it could be us, but I feel like she'll probably be on another one before us. Um, but she's, she's an amazing force and I have no doubt her best marathons are yet to come. Yeah. I love the, the support in women's running too. I think it was Kira who had put up social media posts that um, I hope some some women are you know, watching thought I can do that too and I hope that they do and I will be there to support them when they do like I love that feeling in the women's running community that we are getting strong and we are breaking these you know these records and barriers and there are more to come and that we're that that there's a support if it's not a competitive I mean obviously everyone who does that is competitive but there's a very it's a good it's a good feeling um so i think it's I, I think that you're right i think that there are more records to be broken and um it's great to see the the american women women's running community really um really taking off for sure so um speaking of training um we're really excited to welcome our upcoming guest his name is tony rich and tony is a tremendous running coach and triathlon coach out of the Boston area and like us is a big fan of the Boston Marathon. He has run it so far 18 times consecutively and is an expert. This time is 18. We 17. This year oh, is 18. Oh, thank you. 17 times consecutively. This Still, 17, 18 doesn't matter. <laughs> And uh, he's a native Boston Amer Boston resident. He also attended Boston College and Boston University, which is relevant, of course, because both schools are along the Boston course. 
but he has such impressive credentials. And we wanted to have him on the podcast because we felt like it would be really fun to chat with someone who, like us, is just as passionate about Boston and bounce some ideas off of each other. And if you listen to this conversation, uh, while Tony certainly uh, subscribes to many, if not all, of the coaching philosophies we do, he provided some great ideas and thoughts about training for Boston and the execution of the Boston Marathon and the course itself and took us through the course. So when we uh, concluded the conversation, we both said to each other, this is a great conversation to kick off Boston training. So uh, for those who are not training for Boston, we encourage you to listen because everything he talks about is relevant to any kind of race execution. He just talks more specifically about the Boston course. So a little bit about Tony, uh, in addition to being a U.S. track and field level two certified coach and an Ironman coach and a level three cycling coach, he's also a certified master swim coach, which is really incredible because Tony talks about he learned to swim as an adult and now is an expert swimmer himself. He's completed over 100 long course endurance events over 16 years, including numerous open water swims, uh, 70.3 races, over 70 marathons with a PR of 314, of which 17 are consecutive Boston marathon finishes. So in addition to uh, being born and raised in Boston and living in Boston, he coaches locally in Boston, and he is the host of the Endurance Experience podcast, which we will link in our show notes, where he talks about with guests, and they discuss the science of self-propelled motion. And we loved how he describes endurance sport as self-propelled motion, which is exactly what that is. Um, Tony also has an extensive career background in science and data. And data. He also is a certified scrum master. And for those who don't know what that is, we had to look it up too. It's a coined term for a person who leads software development teams. So Tony has a passion for data science and draws inspiration from the scientific methods in his training and coaching process. So we were really excited to talk with him. He was a great guest and we look forward to meeting him in Boston as well. We'll invite him to our shakeout run. Maybe he'll be able to come in between his shakeout runs for his clients, but uh, we, we are excited to talk with him next. So stick with us and we'll welcome Tony next. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Tony Rich, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited for you to join us today. Thank you for having me. So Tony, we're going to dig right in. You are an expert in so many things and a master in so many things. So we could talk for hours, but we're going to focus the conversation a little bit more on the Boston Marathon because this is a Boston Marathon podcast. But before we dig into that, we wanted to get a little bit of background about you. So Tony, can you share with our listeners a little bit about you, including your running background and your triathlon background and your coaching background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I go all the way back to high school. I was uh, uh, a track athlete in, in high school and I ran the, the 400 meters, everything from the 400 meters down. And so uh, the fact that I got into endurance sports later, it was, it was pretty amazing because I was never a long, uh, an endurance guy uh, in, in high school. I did some other things like, like football and, 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 and basketball, but from, from a running standpoint, I was always a 400 meters and down. And even, you know, to now I'm still, you know, sort of um, 
built more like a like a sprinter than anything else. Uh, but uh, but I like the four hundred, but because the four hundred is if you've ever anyone who knows about the four hundred, it's a long sprint. It's basically as fast as you can go for about a minute. It's it's hard, but that was my uh, my focus. And then it wasn't until later on, until you know after college that I I got into endurance sports. And you know, so I go back to what two thousand and three ish, and this was when when running groups were sort of the new thing. And I just showed up at a running local running group one day, and just because you know, a friend brought me and I just got sucked into what they were doing. They would just, you know, they would go run long. And then I would, go, I, you know, I came in with all the wrong gear, the wrong sneakers, but then just got sucked into what they, what they were doing. And then, you know, from there, I think uh, I started, I started running, running long. And shortly after that, I think that was probably 2002, 2003. And then, uh, that's when I started getting getting into the distance running, and then shortly after that, it was oh I heard about this thing called the Ironman Triathlon. I didn't know how to swim. I didn't really know how to know how to swim until age uh, age thirty. But uh, after learning, uh, you know what the Ironman was all about, I knew that th that was something that I wanted to get involved in. And then you know, several years later, I said, you know, maybe I could start coaching <laughs> and, and coaching this. And then was what, 2011, when I started Event Horizon Endurance, my, my coaching company. And then from there, I just took off. I mean, I took off with endurance sports. It was just something that really grabbed, grabbed me and uh, became a passion. And I never jump into anything halfway. I just sort of jump all the way in. And that's what I did with, uh, you know, both the marathon and, and also, you know, triathlon. I think now I'm 48. I'll probably hit a hundred marathons before 50. Uh, and, and then off the, the, the Ironman just, uh, that was an entirely different endeavor where I had to not only learn swimming, but then master swim, become a master swim coach and learn how to run a, 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 a company as you guys are coaches as well. So you know what's involved in all of that. And so uh, that's been the journey since 2002, 2003 ish. <laughs> it's an incredible and journey. Tony, your your, your um, professional background, tell us a little bit about your professional background because I think oh, yeah. it plays into how you approach how you approach coaching, but, but you're a, you're a data scientist, right? And you exactly. tell, us, tell us a little bit about your professional, your professional background, what you do. Yeah, I have, I have a couple of master's degrees. One, one is a master's in data science and I work as a you know, nine to five in, in software engineering and data science and what's called a scrum master. And anybody who knows about software engineering knows that you're sort of an engineer of engineers. And it's very interesting because I've saw, I saw an interesting parallel between the two, where it's uh, yeah, between between being a scrum master and a coach, it's it's planning, um, planning, having uh, retrospectives where you're looking back at your performance and analyzing it, uh, strategizing on what you need to do next, 
um, go or no go decisions and, and having a solid plan. And I saw some very interesting parallels between the two. And now I sort of take aspects of each and apply them to both. So it's been a very interesting uh, eye-opening experience there. Yeah, for sure. And that's, um, I, I think, something we'd like to talk, we can talk a little bit more about later when we get to, you know, coaching and, and approaching training. Um, but that's, you know, it's always a think helpful to have that uh, analytic and da database background where you right. can apply that. Very um, data centric. Athletes become, become better, but become better athletes because you've got that concrete data that, yep. that you can, that you can use. Um, so, so we're going to get to the, we, you've got some really <laughs> impressive accomplishments all around, but particularly uh, we were talking before we started recording with, with respect to triathlon, but because we are focused on the Boston marathon and on running and, and we've just started kind of kicked off our Boston marathon training series of podcasts. Um, we want to talk to you about the Boston marathon, how many Boston marathons, and first of all, you live in Boston, so you're right. You're, you're right. a local um, to the course. How many Boston marathons have you run? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've done 17 so uh this this year will be 18 so i'm close to you guys i'm close to you guys so for sure so we got <laughs> okay we could, right we are could, they are they are they consecutive have you run them consecutively consecutive yeah yep consecutive yeah, awesome and That's great. Yeah, so i think you and i could have some conversations with you guys about the years reminisce about some of those years <laughs> Yeah, we always like to say every year had kind of a theme. There was like the hot year. There was the, you know, the the nor'easter year. There was every year sort of has has a, has a theme right. um, going back many many years. So that's always fun to talk to people who've, who've done many of them, and we all remember different years for yeah. for different reasons. Do you have one? Do you have one that's your favorite or that sticks out most in your mind? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple that that were my favorites. Uh, well, the the first one really that is the one that got me hooked. Um, the course itself is sort of uh, a retrospective on my life um, because I grew up in, in Boston area. I went to Boston College undergrad, you know, and as you guys know, we run right by Boston College. And uh, you know, actually we, we run right by my, a couple of my, my dorms that I, I lived in. And I went to BU for, for graduate school. So the entire course, especially the, the back half, is a sort of a retrospective of my life. And I always see people that I know, people that I haven't seen in ages um, and, you know, family members. And, and so the first one was really the one that got me hooked because I was like, wow, this is a, incredible. Um, and then... Um, that one, and there was also you know the the last one that I that my mom came to. I think that was sometime in two thousand and six. I think my people know that I, my mom passed away in two thousand and seven. So that was a, a memorable one um, in hindsight that that uh, I loved because then that was we we spent a, a significant amount of time hanging out afterwards. So those are the two that I can think of, and and obviously there are many just just memorable ones. The the nor'easter year, twenty eighteen. That was one that I said to myself, "Yeah, this one might be the one that I don't finish." <laughs> <laughs> All of us uh, said that. 
and I meant I meant it. I I had uh, that was just I said to myself, yeah, this might be the one I don't finish during the race. But I just said, no, I can't do that. And I just stuck it out. But uh, obviously, and then and then the the 2013, which everyone's very familiar with worldwide, but many memorable uh, races uh, at the, on the Boston Marathon course, for sure. Well, you definitely echo so many of our sentiments. We would agree with you that the one we, we both felt like was the most discouraging was 2018. And interestingly, you did not mention 2012, which is often one that people mention as when they almost didn't finish because that was, of course, the hot year. Um, how did you fare in that one? Yeah, the hot years. I think I think I have a couple of the hottest marathons ever on my my record. But yeah, I I do better that with heat than cold. I mean, heat you just have to muster through, and um, and so I do much better with with heat than cold. Cold is my nemesis, and 100% I came into that. I'd rather run. <laughs> 86 degree weather than third than what we had yeah. i would take 2012 over 2018 any day any day yeah I, I mean i did that also the a couple of the hottest marathons ever i've done the, the, that chicago one where people dropped out at 10 o'clock 10 a.m i did that but i can always muster through hot but the, the cold oh man uh that was i mean that one in 2018 with the sideways rain and it was cold and you Every step was in a gigantic puddle. And then, oh, my goodness, I said to myself, this is it. Um, it <laughs> but obviously, yeah, you know, we mustered through it. But, yeah. So you've just kind of talked about which Bostons were the most notable to you, not necessarily your favorite. But over, over the years, and because you've done so many Bostons in varying temperatures and conditions, what specifically have you learned not as a coach, but about yourself that you share with your runners after completing so many different. Yeah. The, the thing that I share with people, and that's really, you know, um, that feeling that you get on the back half where you, you, you'll have so many emotions. Maybe you have a good race. Maybe you have a bad race, but I tell people in that last hour, that last hour really makes the race or not. And I tell people to think, do whatever I can do, muster up whatever I have left, I can rest tomorrow. And that's, that's the thing that I want them to hear in their head in that last hour, that last 40 minutes. Look, I can rest tomorrow. That's what always got me through a hard event, really anytime. And when you look at it, like we were talking about, you know, you, you, what runs through your mind, you know, maybe this is the one that I don't finish. But the thing that speaks louder to me is, look, muster through this, do this, finish this, I can rest tomorrow. And that's the thing that I want to, if I coach someone, I want them to hear that in their head. And that last 40 minutes, whether they're trying to qualify or requalify or whether they're just trying to get through it, uh, stick to your plan, concentrate on uh, your, your race execution strategy, and then realize that you only have 40 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it is, I can rest tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, because no matter what your plan is, no matter how well trained you are, that last, that last bit of any race 
uh, particularly Boston, if you go out too fast in the front half, is, is brutal. So you really do have to channel your mental game to get through some of the harder parts. So mm-hmm. um, to that end, we want to dig deep with you and talk to you a little bit about some strategy, strategy tips that you have as a fellow Boston Marathon expert, uh, particularly because you live in Boston and you likely practice a lot of the runs on the course as a result. Right. Um, we've got a lot of runners here who are first time Boston marathoners, but we've got a lot who are veteran Boston marathoners. So why don't we just start with the course and, and, uh, give us some of your tips for executing a, a perfect Boston marathon, starting with, uh, the first, uh, quarter of the race and, and, and going from there. Yeah. So the first quarter of the race, uh, I think is, you know, you know, looking at, um, let's see the first one to six miles ish Hopkinton, you're going through Hopkinton, Ashland and Framingham. And obviously this is where the, the, the runners have to try to be the most, uh, conservatives and really focus on your, your, your race execution strategy, because you can really get carried away in, uh, you know, the first, you know, few miles of this race through Hopkinton and Ashland. It's it's downhill, um, and uh, you you will be tested because there's uh, everything from traffic, so much traffic in that first. Whether you're in the you know the back of the pack with the uh, with the charity runners or you're you're up front with the qualifiers, there's a significant amount of 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 um, traffic there and so i think um you know i always talk tell people pick a side pick a side and stay to that side to in order to try to get through as much traffic as you can and you know uh, try to you know put put the brakes on in that first uh few miles because it's easy, very easy to get carried away uh in uh, Ashland and Framingham and, um, you know, you need to focus on starting your nutrition process and stick to the pacing plan. Um, from there, you know, we can talk yeah, about, you know, the, the crowds too, in those first, you know, I mean, the crowds are along the entire course, but the crowds, you know, that adrenaline that you feel when, especially if it's your far, first Boston and you've been waiting for this moment and you get there and everything feels easy, a pace you, Correct, down, yeah. you see that it's you know, 15, 20, 30 seconds faster than what you should be running. It feels, it feels easy. And one thing I think you brought up, I think it's really important, which I think is unique to Boston most years. And in this past year, when we had a rolling start, it was a little di- different, but in most years, you're starting in a corral with people who run your pace. Their qualifying time is about the same as yours. So you're all stuck together. Whereas in a, in a normal race, you may start to spread out and you'll you start to separate from, from other people. At Boston, you tend to stick with a crowd the entire time because you're starting with the people that all run about your pace. So that is definitely, I think that's yep. a great bit of advice to kind of pick your spot and stick with it because you're not going to get out of that crowd for, 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 some, for some time. So I think that's a really, really great advice. And one other point I would um, say that I think some of our first time runners are surprised about is that the first four, six, even really 13 miles, isn't all downhill. There are some uphills. So we even, yeah, you know, as you, hit, as you hit past mile one, you see the hill coming and you think, wait a minute, we're not supposed to have any uphills yet. And some of our runners had said, well, I wasn't expecting that up, you know, those uphills. So there are some, um, some 
uphills, which help actually help vary up the muscles that you're using. And that's good, but, um, but it is net downhill. So like you said, I think the adrenaline, the crowds, the, and, and again, everyone's running kind of the same pace. You can get, get sucked into that pace, even if it's not your way yeah. you should be running. So I think that's all yeah. really right great at advice. the start of Framingham. There's that, there's that, uh, uh, little uphill. And yeah. I, I, I have the, 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 the towns burned in my head. So you, I think Hopkinson, Ashland, Framingham, and then, uh, and then, you know, uh, Framingham ends right around mile seven, then Natick, and then Natick comes after that. And then Natick just, it just seems like you're in Natick for so long. <laughs> so totally. Natick is eight, nine, 10, 11. And uh, there's a little, another little downhill in Natick. And, but then the second half of Natick is where you just sort of have to, um, you know, dial in because it seems like you're in Natick forever. And, um, and so I think, you know, first hour, second hour, right. So, you know, the, the people that are, you know, hitting, you know, eight miles an hour, we'll see the first hour go by and they'll, all of a sudden they'll be in Natick. They'll be starting Natick. Um, and I think um, you just need to settle into your, your, your plan, your pacing plan. Right. So that is, is an, another strategy in itself. How do you, how do you pace that in the first hour? How do you pace it in the second hour? And then, you know, starting in, in second hour, um, uh, where are, are you on target, uh, when you're in Natick and that's the, the, the nuance that everybody has to try to figure out, start dialing into your plan. Are you hitting it? Uh, start dialing into your race nutrition plan. Um, um, well, let, let me ask you something. There's a definitely, um, two schools of thought with respect to pacing and a pacing plan for Boston. Um, mm-hmm. one of course is more pacing by effort because a lot of people, say, of course, that when you're running your marathon pace and it's net downhill in the first part, especially it feels super easy. So if you're going a little bit faster than your marathon pace, that's okay. If the effort feels really easy. And then of course, the other school of thought is, uh, start out a little bit slower than your marathon pace. It should feel very easy because you want to conserve, conserve, conserve. Where, where do you land in that? Yeah, I definitely feel that you have to do a combination of both of, um, effort your perceived effort sort of doing what your body uh, uh, what's in the ability in your body uh and also uh planning by uh your technology um and and pacing uh pacing data right so it's one of the hardest things to do even uh experienced marathoners have have a challenge with this right so you can either do even splits, or negative splits, or positive splits, right? And so there's so many strategies, and it's different depending upon which person um, you're working with, right? So you can try to start very conservatively, and you know try to do, uh, maintain pace later for the second half, or um, speed up for the second half. Even splits are really hard to do in Boston. And so I don't see uh, many people attempt to try to do an even split. Um, but I think um, 
it really just depends on the type of person. But I think you need to uh, have a combination of perceived effort, doing what your body uh, can, um, doing what's in the ability of your of your body, but also just sort of thinking, okay, first hour, second hour, third hour, fourth hour, right? And so if you if you break it up into quadrants and understand approximately where you want to be at the end of first hour, second hour, and third hour, then you can sort of on the fly dial into how you're feeling using your Garmin to uh, get a sense of where you are. And um, that's how I, I, I work with uh, athletes. And it's very difficult. You know, how people have those pacing bands and things like that. Yep. They almost inevitably end up on the ground. You'll walk on, <laughs> you see, you see, you start running and all you see is pacing bands on the ground because people have figured out that it's very difficult to try to pace with, with, with those pacing bands. They don't really work. You need a much more uh, uh, dynamic approach to, uh, to pace at the, uh, specifically at the Boston Marathon. It's almost like two or three different races. So I think you bring up a great point with respect to it being a dynamic approach because you know we just talked about the first hour and we all can agree that first hour is defined by conserving. And you touched on the second hour, which is a long hour because you mentioned Natick, but it's also mm-hmm. a fun hour because that also includes for many runners, uh, Wellesley. And right. so talk to us though, once you hit Wellesley, we're starting to enter the third hour. Right. And that's, that's a tough hour. So I know for me personally, and I think Lisa, you've mentioned this too, but I know it, it's just. it's so burnt in my mind. I have a very hard time in the third hour, um, right around mile 17 or so. That's usually when I lose my, um, when I lose my shit for like a little bit and then I get myself (laughs) together again. So, um, talk to us about where, where you feel that if you do each year and what you do to get yourself back to a place of neutrality. I think all of us, and I, you know, I sometimes hit it. Um, I usually actually, I think I, I actually hit it, um, after, you know, everyone looks for the hills and, mm-hmm. and you're anticipating them and you get through them and then you still have a 10K to go. So I always kind of hit it after that where I start to, oh my gosh, we still have, you know, quite a ways to go. But I think what Julie's point is, is really good is that, you know, in any marathon, but particularly Boston, but really in any marathon, there's going to be some low time where you just start to struggle mentally, physically. Um, and, and how do you, do you hit that in the marathon? When, when do you hit it and how do you get through that so that you can then kind of move on and have a strong race? Yeah. And so the, the, the third hour, I I also uh, find that that's the most difficult hour and, uh, try to coach people through this, but, you know, if you've fueled appropriately in that first hour and second hour, then, the 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 effort and the that that feeling that you know I feel good you right that should be there if you've if you've paced appropriately and if you've fueled appropriately um, if you haven't done that appropriately in the first hour and the second hour the third hour is going to be a very difficult because that's the start of the four Newton Hills and really you know how you feel through uh the, the, the Newton Hills are really going to de- define, define how your race is going to end up. 
And, you know, so the four Newton Hills, they start um, uh, at what, 16 ish and 17, 18, and, and, and then 20. And, you know, so I think the key to getting through the third hour really is making sure that you've done the nutrition, pre-race pre nutrition work and then the, the race nutrition work in the first and second hour. Now, uh, mentally, uh, you just need to, you know, sort of focus on um, concentrating on whatever it is that you need to, uh, to do to uh, make sure that, you know, the wheels don't fall off, right? So if, if it's, you know, just focusing on, you know, some, some aspect of the race that motivates you, uh, something that inspires you, whether you're running for a charity, uh, whether you feel like, you know, you're, you're trying to hit that personal record, something that inspires you and uh, keeps your spirits up. Uh, I think that's probably one of the um, athlete psychology aspects of getting through the third hour. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um... We, we do. And we actually had a Boston area um, mental, uh, you know, a, a sports psychologist, a mental performance expert um, mm -hmm. come on and, and talk before Boston last time. And that's what we what we touched upon. But you also talked about. So that's obviously very important. The pacing we've talked about. You talked about nutrition. Talk to us yeah. about, you know, your approach to nutrition and, and kind of how you stay on top of that, how you advise your athletes to stay on top of that. Um, I mm -hmm. think for many of our runners, we see them say, you know, they can go out and do a long run, 16, 20 mile long run and not need a ton of fuel. And um, we try to explain to them on race day, are going to be running faster, burning through glycogen faster. You know, we encourage our runners on, on yep. their long runs to really practice race day nutrition, even if they don't feel like they need it. But what, what do you do to prepare your runners? What do you recommend? And how do you get to that point where your nutrition has supported a strong finish? Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely correct in that you need at least 10 weeks out practice your, your race nutrition strategy, right? And, and runners often, uh, fail to do this, they'll just sort of, sort of wing it and then just sort of wing it through race day. But I think you need to train your gut in order to be able to absorb whatever it is, your preferred race nutrition. But I think the way I sort of talk people through this is, uh, understand how, how much you're burning per hour when you run at your pace. So, uh, sometimes people will burn anywhere from 700 to a thousand calories per hour when they're, when they're running. Um, uh, so, and I've come to realize that you need to replace about a third of that per hour. Right. And so that's understand that math. And that's where the quantitative piece that you know, we talked about earlier, where, where that comes in. Right. So if you need to, if you need to replace a third of what you're burning per hour, understand how you're going to get that in, whether it's a combination of liquid nutrition, um, gels, blocks, whatever you're carrying on you. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you can hit that and have a plan for, for hitting that, then you, you know, and you've trained your gut to be able to absorb 
that, right? Because if you don't train your gut to be able to absorb that, it's just going to stay in your stomach and you're going to end up having either that sloshy feeling or gastrointestinal stress, things like that. That's and not- let me, just point out, let me just point out quickly, when you mentioned it's a third, that's the minimum. If you can yeah. get even yeah. more, that's better. That's like the bare bones when you mention that. So right, exactly. And, and again, the key is, how much can your how much can you absorb? How much can your in, in, intestines absorb? And in, in in order to train it to absorb the, the maximum it can, you got to do two, 10 weeks out, twelve weeks out. So you know, literally, like like right now, is when you should be start starting your long runs, uh, and making sure that you're doing uh, doing that in your long runs now so that you can train your gut to absorb the maximum amount of race nutrition on race day. You have to train your gut to do that. Otherwise you're going to get that sloshy feeling where it's not absorbing. And, you know, and, it, and that's, that's where you feel like in that third hour, you're like, my goodness, I feel bad. <laughs> so that's the strategy with, with, with race, uh, race nutrition and planning this stuff uh, you know, far too often you'll see amateur marathoners just sort of wing it, you know, they'll just go to race. They'll just go to the starting line and, and just sort of wing it. Planning is the, is the key to uh, having a good race. Tony, what do you use on the Boston race course? Have you switched to Morton because that's what they've started giving out on the course, or do you have a standard um, source of nutrition that you prefer? Yeah, now I, I'll do, um, goo uh so you know goo, goo just came out with the the liquid the liquid formula which it comes in a pack and you just take that pack every i think it, it's five minutes before every and then it, uh, each additional pack every 40 minutes and then supplement the race the rest with um, you know liquid nutrition that's on the course and that will get me to the you know sort of that that you know one third of, of what I'm burning. Um, so I think, but everyone really has to figure this out, whether you're using, you know, blocks, whether you're using what's on the course, whether you're carrying, uh, you, you plan to carry your preferred nutrition, you really need to have that plan out and, and be able to execute it as a part of the entire race execution strategy and so when i'm working with athletes we we will literally write up an entire race execution plan where a part of that plan is pre-race nutrition race nutrition and 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 obviously the pacing planner so planning is the you know the key to this yeah yeah absolutely we we do that as well and um you know we also remind our runners that, um, you know, your, your gut reacts differently on race day when you're running at race pace. So you want to make sure that whatever you're using agrees with you. And we often have runners incorporated if they're doing tempo runs or tune-up runs, but, right. um, that execution and not only the execution, but the, of the timing, but something that we've talked to our runners about and issues we've run into ourselves, um, 2018, I physically couldn't get my nutrition out of the packet 
and into my mouth because it was so cold and our hands were so cold and we had gloves on. So that's something else to think about is, you know, the logistics of execution of whatever you're choosing. Is it going to be easy to get into your mouth? Are you going to be, how do you package it? How are you going to carry it? We have runners who like to use liquid nutrition. So tailwind or one of those products. And, you know, what are you going to do when you run out? Are you going to be able to refill on the course? Are you bringing a tablet that you're going to put in your water? Is somebody be on the course to hand it to you? So not only the execution of timing, but the execution of logistics, how do I actually get this into my system? Because you can have the greatest plan, which I discovered in 2018, and I couldn't execute it because I couldn't get the the chews I had were frozen and I couldn't get them out of the baggies I had. And, you know, on that day like that, a liquid, like, you know, the, like the goo you're talking about where you just tear off the top and squeeze it in your mouth would have probably been the easier thing. So that's, um, you know, we have, you know, obviously like you, our weather is really cold here now and people are starting to see that, oh no, my my gels are freezing or this is happening or I can't get this into my mouth. So it's something to, to take into account as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah. how always having some sort of some form of backup, I, you know, you drop something, you know, I've, I've had situations where I went in my pocket and then it was, my, my nutrition wasn't there. Oh, must've flew out, must've dropped out. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to try to supplement with uh, whatever race nutrition is on the course and see if, um, you know, see if I can make it up there and then, we'll, you know, the, the, grab a the, banana from a spectator, banana <laughs> from a spectator. Grab something from um, a spectator, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tony, we kind of went through the race course. We talked about execution a little bit, talked about fueling. Um, but we have a lot of runners right now who are listening, who are saying this all sounds great, but man, I'm having a lot of trouble even getting my miles in right now because the weather is so awful or, I'm, you know, dealing with all of the ancillary issues with respect to Omicron, COVID, et cetera. So what advice do you have for those listening who have, um, whose training training has started off not so ideal? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we, I mean, we talked about uh, indoor training and, and I know people have different uh, affinities for indoor training, right? Right now we're in the Northeast, we're dealing with a cold, a cold snap where people are just like, listen, it's single digits. I don't feel like getting up out of there. So I would say that, um, you know, try, you know, creative ways of getting in your run training. I mean, I have a home treadmill. Not everybody has a home treadmill. Uh, not everyone can, um, you know, get into facilities. I mean, people are just not dealing with facilities because of the pandemic. And so I, I think you have to try creative ways of, of getting in your, your running volume, right? So if you, maybe you try double sessions, right? Maybe you try, uh, maybe you try a morning session, uh, a shorter morning session and a, sort, a shorter evening session, you know, breaking it up. If you can't do a long run all in once, um, one shot, maybe you do uh, another broken effort. So broken efforts are something that we we will often do with uh, with um, with athletes, right? So if you can't get in your your fifteen mile run, maybe you do five 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 with uh, in between. You're doing. Uh, couple of hour break, two to three hour break in between. And maybe that's the way that you get in your 15 miler. So those tend to work when you, you know, people can't find the time to get out 
and do that 15 mile run, 16 mile run, broken efforts. Maybe you do, you know, two, um, two runs on the treadmill and one run outside, something like that. Any way that you can get it in. So that might. That's great advice. My... And talking about speaking about indoor training, let's take a little, just diverge a little bit um, and talk about your accomplishment. Your one of your really big, many accomplishments, but um, is that you hold the Guinness uh, Book of World Records record yeah. for fastest indoor Ironman distance triathlon. So talk to us a little bit about that. You're, you finished sub eight hours, which is an amazing time for any Ironman triathlon, Never mind one that was done indoors. Now I know there are benefits that you get to control the, um, you know, the, the conditions. So you don't have the storms, you don't have the wind, you don't have the heat, but yeah. there are challenges in, in the mental aspects and execution of an indoor triathlon. So talk to us just a little bit about, tell us about, um, that, that, uh, that feat and that, yeah. that accomplishment that you, that you, it's less impressive than it sounds. <laughs> so basically, I think it's impressive. basically with, uh, with my local YMCA, we started, we started doing this for, for the charity. The YMCA has a charity that, uh, you know, basically if someone doesn't have, uh, someone's economically disadvantaged and then why will give you give out scholarships to econ economically disadvantaged people for after school programs and things like that. So it started off as a, as a, a thing that I did for my local YMCA to raise money for that charity. And I said, Hey, why don't we do an indoor Ironman? I could do it. I'll do the swim in the pool, which would be 180 lengths of the pool or something to that effect. If I get that math right, that's a good sign. Yeah, 180 lengths. Yep. And then we would do the uh, the bike on a on an indoor trainer. And then we would do the treadmill marathon. Ooh. And they said, can you do that? Yeah, I'll do it. And um, so we did it for a couple of years. We ended up raising a ton of money for for the charity and i said uh, to the directors and the uh the directors of, of the Y, i wonder if there's a guinness world record for this so that began the process of to getting it even accepted as a guinness world record that is a process in itself it took years to even get it accepted you have to write up a proposal go to guinness world record and talk to them on why you think it should be a record and then that took a couple of years to even get it accepted. And then so finally, we, we heard back from Guinness World Record. This is uh, over years. And then we finally heard back and they, they, they accepted the proposal. And, uh, and one of the things that we realized that um, they, they set the record, they said, okay, you, 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 it's not enough to just complete it we're going to tell you which time you need to hit in order to get get the record and then uh so they set the time to eight hours and we were like my goodness a pro triathlete is that fast <laughs> right so and then finally we said look oh it doesn't look like they put any stipulations on the resistance of the of the bike so uh so we said okay what if we did this as a as the, the bike leg is just a simulated downhill like 
you just you just had a downhill where you could traverse uh, the 112 mile bike course. And so that's what we started doing. We said, all right, how fast can this be done if we set the watts at 200 watts? Well, that was still really hard. How fast can you do this if we set the watts at 180 watts? How fast could you do this if you set the watts on the bike to 100 watts, right? And so we started then just sort of dynamically figuring out uh, how fast or how hard could you make the bike course in order to really do it. And so it was a trial and error process until over the years, I think we at, at one point we, we figured out that the wattage needed to be a hundred or less in order for me to try to try to beat that. But there's another added issue with the, the monotony of being indoors and, and such. So, so that's the reason why it was even possible. <laughs> All right. It was basically doing an Ironman indoor Ironman where the, uh, you, you, you have the resistance on the bike as, as low as you, you can possibly have it in order to, to complete it. And so finally, it's still eight yeah, hours. Yeah. It's still eight hours indoors in the on a uh, in the pool on the bike, and right. then on a treadmill. Which, as any runner is listening to this, know yeah. running any marathon on a treadmill, no matter what your advantage, it's hard. Is mentally how, hard. how did you, how did you get through that mentally? How did you do what? How what was your mental approach to that? The mental approach to it was just having tons of um, of sort of exposure to things going on, and so we had the music playing had, um, you know, people coming in to actually run with you and people coming in throughout the entire day and some clients come in. Did the mayor come in? Did I, did I read that the mayor came in at one point? The mayor awesome. came in, right. Uh, Marty Walsh, who's now, uh, the, the labor secretary for Joe Biden came in and, you know, uh, he, he offered in, in, in some encouragement. And so, and the whole thing was just uh, a great experience to finally do it after all of those years of trying to get it approved, writing proposals, and then to get it actually accepted, you have to have a, you can't just do it, right? You have to have a videotape of the entire event. So you, everything has to be recorded. Uh, you have to get signed affidavits of people who would uh, uh, agree to be the sort of stewards of of the entire event. And then you have to submit all of that in order to get it approved. So finally, we, we were able to get it approved after. Uh, so that's something it's if anybody out there wants to do it, there's there's a there's a female record. And anybody out there can go after. There hasn't been a, an attempt to, by anyone to break it yet, but I think someone ev eventually will. Absolutely, <laughs> Lisa, I nominate you. I feel like you could do it. No, 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 don't even look, don't look at me. That's, that is that is incredible. But but speaking of of people trying to break records and and um and just you you know we talked earlier on that you're a master's athlete as well what is what are your secrets or what are your keys to kind of longevity as a master's athlete i mean is yeah. able to do everything that you're doing as a master's athlete how do you stay healthy and how do you think you're going to be able to stay healthy moving you know into your 50s and beyond i've been th uh, thinking a lot about that and i i coach several athletes in their 40s and 50s you have to sort of readjust your uh your mindset 
in order to in order to continue to have longevity, right? Because when I was in my twenties and thirties, it was, you know, I want to knock the cover off the ball every time. I want to PR every time. And if you do that, you're going to eventually just blow up and have uh, and, and burn out later, right? You have to sort of adjust your, especially if your coach or running a coaching platform, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And so oftentimes, you know, I'll go out and do events, even Boston Marathon now, I'll go out and do four hours because I know that I can do it without much training, right? And so you have to, you have to pull back your expectations and know that those days of knocking the cover off the ball are, are you know, in the past. And you need to be comfortable with that, right? You, you have to be comfortable with, with going out and, and feeling like you don't have to show everybody that you're still fast and just enjoy it. Just enjoy the sport, do, do events uh, for the recreation and the fun of it. Um, you know, we, we see what happened with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, right? That mental aspect of the pressure of always having to feel like you have to perform. And you need to really put that in the back burner. And, it, and you, you, don't, you don't have to perform for social media and perform for people anymore. And if you try to do that, eventually you will burn out. And so I would say that's the number one thing. Be comfortable being able to uh, change your expectations in a way that you can enjoy it versus having pressure of putting in, you know, 50 hours, uh, 50 miles, 60 miles, 70 mile running week in order to, in order to get, get fast. Um, would you agree yeah, we with found that? We can't do that as a getaway. Yeah, absolutely. Like we can't, I know Julie and I both realized once we got to our really mid to late forties that we just need, and on the runners that we coach that are 50, 60, even 70 year old, all realize that we need more recovery time. And like yeah. you said, that means you can't go out and you can't go as hard and fast and strong as you can every day. And you can't do it every day. And you have got to um, be comfortable. I think that's such a great point of kind of accepting with that acceptance of my body is different. Now my recovery time is different. What my body can do is different and finding um, different benchmarks. You know, we, we tell people, you know, maybe you're not going to run the same time that you ran 10 years ago, but how about you look for doing well in your age group? Right. Or, you know, even finishing this, this goal that you set. So that's, and, and I think it's hard for a lot of people and especially, and you can probably relate to this because you were an athlete when you were younger, people who were athletic when they were younger and had fast times or a lot of accomplishments. It's, it's, I think it's very hard for them um, to let go of that. We see a lot of runners who have set in their mind that all their training runs need to be at a certain pace. Cause that's always what they ran. You know, I always ran eight thirties in my easing training runs for years and years and years. And now I'm 45, I'm 50 and I can't hit, you know, hitting nines is hard, but I can't, I have to hit eight thirties cause that's what I always hit. And they right. feel like they're a failure if they don't hit those eight thirties anymore, but we're trying to tell them, no, you know, that nine that you're hitting is the same strength, same, same stimulus to your body that the eight thirty was. And it just, I think it's, it's very good point that it's really that acceptance and that mental, um, that mental switch to not having to impress anybody, not posted on social media, you know, not have to keep up with the social media world. And that's, um, you know, hopefully with age and maturity that, that comes. Um, but I think it's hard for a lot of people. So I think that's, you know, good to hear that from somebody as accomplished as you also worked with so many, you know, so many athletes that are, that are masters athletes as well. It is. I I just want to add one point though. You're not saying don't be competitive and don't try things. It's just, you can't be the jack of all trades. You kind of right. have to select. So you mentioned earlier that sometimes you run Boston 
um, slower than your fullest potential because you're focused during that season on something else. That doesn't yeah. mean you're still not competitive. It's just we need to honor our bodies and recognize to be have longevity in the sport. You'll you can't go out and nail every training run. You have to accept where you are and recognize that that stimulus that Lisa just Correct. mentioned will still yeah. yield a great result. So with your master's athletes and yourself, can you tell us sort of what you find with respect to training that works best with master's athletes, not just for longevity, longevity, but for those who, who want to compete and, and place in their age group, what, what yeah. types of things do you see as a coach and as a runner? Yep. And so, um, I think one of the things that we look, we're looking at, I mean, you can absolutely still be competitive as you get older for sure. And so the, with, with, with marathons and especially the Boston marathon course, we look at something uh, called peripheral, uh, peripheral system fitness, right? So that's that, uh, that feeling that you get, you know, at mile 20, right. And building up that peripheral system fitness, we look at something called one and a half X to two and a half X. And that just means the, the amount of volume you're trying to hit in a, in a, in a training week at, at peak, right? So one and a half X that's, that would be, you know, about 40 miles. That means you, you're hitting one and a half times the marathon distance in a week. That's about 30 miles, uh, uh, 40 miles. And, you know, even, you know, someone looking to, to do much better and place, you know, qualify or requalify, place high in their age group, they might hit something close to, to two and a half X, which, uh, which is two and a half times the marathon in a, in a, in a peak week. That's, you know, somewhere near about 65 miles. And we have you know, some guys, some males and females who are, you know, been running all of their life that are still competitive and still performance athletes that will do even north of two and a half X. Right. And so you're doing that, you're doing, you know, you're doing some pretty substantial volume. So planning that out in advance and then coming up with a strategy that, that allows you to build to two X, two and a half X or whatever it's going to be. And that's really the key to building that peripheral system fitness where you really feel like you can just run through the marathon and just keep running. <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, that's a challenge, right? Because in order to, to be able to, to deliver on, on volume like that, you need to have a solid plan. How are you going to get the run-ins? If you do do double sessions, how are you going to do those in days where you don't feel like uh, you have the time? What's your, you know, your contingency plan so that you can still get in volume where you do, do some form of broken effort where you break it up throughout the day? So um, what are your thoughts on, I mean, I, I, do you guys agree on, how, or where do you guys stand on volume, running volume? Um, I think, first of all, it depends on the runner and the structural, yeah. um, the, the, the constitution of the runner, because some runners can be high volume and, and really be able to withstand a lot of miles while other runners are best doing a little bit lower volume with a lot of, uh, low impact cross training. And that of course depends on the runner, but also, um, 
high volume training is often not, uh, for lack of a better word, it's not exciting for, for a lot of runners. And, and what we want to do is make sure that training is, is fun. So yeah. sometimes we have to sacrifice a little bit of high volume to be able to include some fancier speed work, not necessarily because that speed work is so critical, but because that's going to keep the runner engaged and happy and joyful mm-hmm. about their running. Uh, and in order to do high volume and speed work, that's really hard a lot for um, amateur runners to really do both really well because yeah. of course that can sometimes lead to injury. So, but generally speaking, yes, absolutely. We have found for ourselves and for our runners that just high volume alone without speed work works really well. And if you have low volume and a lot of fancy speed work, that doesn't translate as well for the marathon distance specifically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And you know, VO2 max work, lactate threshold, right? Mile repeats, half mile repeats. Those are all important and impactful, right? Um, so yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Johnny, as we start to, you know, close things out and uh, and wrap up um, this episode of our podcast, um, what, what advice would you give, you know, our listeners? We have a lot of listeners that are um, training for Boston, some that are um, thinking about training for marathons, some are training for other spring marathons, but, but at this point, maybe about 12 weeks out from Boston and from other spring races, um, what, what do you think is the most important um, yeah. aspect of training for, for runners to be focused on? Yeah. And so 12 weeks out, um, uh, you know, so that's, you know, that's what, three months, right? So so even right now, it's January 19th. I think maybe runners preparing for Boston now are in, a, in their base phases, right? So uh, I'll do the, you know, the typical Tudor bumper periodization base build peak. And so maybe runners right now are in their base phase or, or if they started early enough, maybe they're coming out of their base phase. But in that base phase, you know, preparation for those four Newton Hills, right? Strength, um, the eccentric loading of, of the, the downhills, right? So I build in base in the base phase uh, at least two to three times per per training block, some, some hill work, a training block being a two week block hills and functional strength. Um, something like wall sits, something like wall sits where, you, you know, people familiar with that, it's sort of an isometric workout on your quadriceps that absolutely helps prepare, uh, those quadriceps for the eccentric loading of downhills, but also some that's one of the things that the treadmill is good for is incline work um, and building in some repeat hill repeats and so i say at at the base phase 12 weeks out you're just building that base that foundation and preparing for those four newton hills and um, we talked about when you're running long starting 10 12 weeks out the race nutrition, the, the race nutrition that you think you're going to do on race day, start practicing it to prepare your gut to be able to absorb as much race nutrition as possible. Yep. Those are all the, all the things that we focus on too. So it's reassuring to hear another coach and another Boston expert focusing on those. And, and one thing we found, um, you know, we, we also 
do some focus on hills. Um, you know, a, a smart focus. Too many hills isn't isn't so productive. But like you said, right. a smart a couple couple times during training block. Um, but that strength that you mentioned is really important, and that's um, we work with a local trainer here who's put together some strength routines that focus on, you know, those muscles that we use in the hills. And and you mentioned too the the downhills, um, preparing your body to take that load because mm-hmm. often um, everyone anticipates the uphills, but they don't anticipate the strain that the downhill takes. So it's good to hear, you know, some some backup and some reassurance. And um, it has just been so wonderful talking to somebody else who who has shares our passion for the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. and endurance endurance sports. And one thing I loved, I was just telling Julie before we hopped on the call. Um, I love that, that you refer to um, all the activities, the endurance sports that we're doing as self-propelled motion. And that's what that's what we're doing is we are we are you know yep. engaging in self-propelled motion, which means that we need to be prepared mentally, physically. We need to have our nutrition in line, everything, um, because it's our bodies that are carrying us through those miles or in the pool or on the bike. Um, so we really appreciate your expertise, not only as a coach that has a lot of experience, um, but also as, as a fellow athlete. So thank you so much for joining us. And we are definitely going to reach out to you when we head up to Boston in April and hope that we get to meet you in person. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to meeting you guys. I think, uh, yeah. Doing two Boston marathons six months apart will be an interesting endeavor, and for uh, sure. it's going to be it's going to be fun for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Tony. It was a pleasure speaking with you. We look forward to meeting you in April. Thank you. Good luck with thank your you training. And good luck with your runners. Take you care. as well. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.